chapter 6 in our survey of this letter written by the Apostle Paul. And we began this series last fall, took a break during Christmas, picked it back up again uh, the second week of January and continuing through. Uh, we'll finish up this uh, portion of the series on Easter Sunday with uh, Romans chapter 8, and take a break for the rest of the spring, uh, summer, and then come back to it in the fall and finish up in um, probably next, uh, next spring as well. Uh, for those of you who are fans of Martin Lloyd-Jones, we can do what he has not done. We will be done in two years with breaks. He took, uh, I think it was nine years, or 11 years, excuse me, to get to chapter nine. Um, but uh, so, uh, at any rate. Uh, while you're turning to Romans chapter six this morning, let me give you a question to be thinking about uh, just to, as we begin our study. Uh, and my question is this. Uh, what do poet Robert Frost, baseball legend Yogi Berra, and the Cheshire Cats all have in common? Now, while you're thinking about that, let me pray. And I'll just pray for you, because if you're thinking about that, you are definitely not going to be praying. But uh, that's all right. The Lord will hear us. Holy God, we, we come at this time with thanksgiving. Uh, for you have blessed us in ways that are so abundant that we can't keep up and number them. But we take them for granted, in part because they're so common. Uh, but Lord, you give us this day as to be distinguished from all others. And it is a day that you have promised to be in our midst and to renew us in grace and in your covenant. Part of that is that we are able to hear your voice speaking through your word. So I pray, Lord, we would worship you, we would honor you now by turning our attention, our full faculty, toward this word that you have given to us through your servant Paul. We would give you your, our minds, though themselves inadequate, because even if we can read and understand some things, the mysteries of your kingdom must be given by your spirit. So we give you not only our mind, but we give you our hearts. And as we give you our mind and our hearts, Lord, we also give our lives. But they actually belong to you. And so we pray that you would shape them in accordance to your purposes. That you would do so by using your word, by the power of your spirit, as we consider that word even now. We pray this now through Christ Jesus. For it is in him that we have wholeness, fullness, and can know you. It's in him that we can have the confidence, that we can approach him. It's in him who is the word incarnated. And since he has us and we have him, we know your word will be at work. All praise God to you. Amen. Romans chapter 6, we'll pick up our reading in verse 15 through the end of this chapter. Hear the word of God. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruits were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of our God. Poet Robert Frost is probably best known for the words ending his poem. Uh, two roads diverged in the woods, and I took the less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. New York Yankees Hall of Fame catcher and manager Yogi Berra is a little bit more succinct, uh, but has kind of the same idea when he told a friend, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. For those that wonder whether that's actually something that was said, apparently in a book that Yogi Berra himself published in 1998 that was titled, I Really Didn't Say Everything That I Said. He actually lists this one very specifically and says, look, there's an, there's an easy explanation for it. And if you understood the explanation, it would make total sense. He said, I was giving directions to my house, to Joe Garagiola, who was another Major League Baseball player, a childhood friend. Well, it really doesn't help much because, you know, still... I don't know whether it made sense to Joe Graziola or not, but he grew up with him, so it would make sense. So when you come to the, come to the fork in the road, take it. But a little bit more specifically, is a Cheshire cat who was seated at the fork of the road. According to Lewis Carroll and his, uh, his, his book, Alice in Wonderland, one day Alice came to the fork in the road and saw a Cheshire cat in a tree. Which road do I take, Alice asked. Where do you want to go, was Cheshire Cat's response. I don't really know, Alice answered. Then either road will do, says the cat. So what do these three have in common? All of them apparently are experts on roads, on paths, some that lead wherever, some that are more profound and others more poetic. Obviously, I, I would think the, the Cheshire cat, for, well, for obvious reasons, says it makes the most sense. If you don't know where you want to go, then it really doesn't matter what road that you are going to choose. But the reason I believe that's pertinent for us today is because this passage, the second part of Romans chapter 6, is a, a picture of two distinct roads described by the Apostle Paul. Two pathways. One, we are told, that leads to death, and the other one that leads to eternal life. Before we explore the two pathways, and, and Paul does give us descriptions of the roads in this passage, I want to pause for, for just a moment. If you've done any hiking, you, you know that it's a good idea to uh, get your orientation. In, in part, every morning, if it's you're doing uh, overnight hikes, is to stop, pause, kind of think back where you came from, check the trail that you just came from and then look for the trail markers that point ahead. And so I think it's important that we do that with this particular passage as well. 
And so as we look back to get our orientation, understand why we are here and, and what this message is, is teaching us, and we can get something out of it just by reading it and jumping into it, but we get the most impact if we understand why Paul put this here in the first place. What is it that he is addressing? And, and so you, you may remember that Romans chapter 6, we, we looked at the first part last week, is, is broken up into two equal parts, essentially equal parts. Uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 14, uh, which had been prompted by something that Paul had said in the end of Romans chapter 5. Paul had, uh, has been, from the very beginning of the book of Romans, laying out a foundation for uh, his readers to understand uh, the necessity of dying to ourselves and, and receiving God's grace. And so from the very beginning of the book, he, he lays out and he uh, writes and, and explains and describes and even says that there's no one who's righteous. There's not even one. Every one of us has sinned. All have sinned. We all shall fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, we are subject to the wrath of God because God will not tolerate anything less than his own holiness. The fact that God is patient in working out his own purposes distorts our perspective of that because we hear God will not tolerate and yet we see evil all around us. We even see evil that is in our own lives and, and yet we don't seem to have suffered these ultimate consequences. So we either believe that God is not serious about this or just somehow are able to live our lives and ignoring it. And then Paul goes on having laid that foundation and he tells us that our own attempts, our religious attempts of kind of follow rules or standards or go through religious rituals, they do nothing. They are of no benefit whatsoever. But rather than the practice of religion, Paul says this, there is a righteousness that has been revealed apart from the law, and that is in Jesus Christ. And God has given us Jesus Christ, who has come in, assumed our nature, lived the perfect life, and yet was punished. He took our the punishment we deserve upon himself. He was crushed. The, the word that Paul uses, the theological word that Paul uses throughout the book of Romans is propitiation, which means there was a punishment that was exacted to pay the penalty we deserve. God didn't just wipe the books clean. Our debt, the debt of anyone who is in Christ, has been paid, not ignored, because it's been absorbed by Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on and he says the way that we appropriate the benefits of what Christ has done, paying our price, is simply by trusting in him, believing. It's by faith, not by religious gymnastics, not by superior moral behavior. It is by faith and faith alone. Now, that's a message that's very difficult for people to swallow because it's too good to be true. And so people begin looking for ways that they can poke holes into that. And they begin then thinking back, well, then what's the law for? And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5 that sin predates the law. Sin has existed ever since our first parents fell. And everyone born now has that condition. And so we have been born in the condition of sin. The, the big S, it's the condition we tend to think of our sins, acts in which we do, which, you know, put with a small S with an S at the end as well. But every one of us has been born into that condition of sin. The law didn't come until much later. And Paul says the reason the law was given was so that sin might increase. Now, that itself seems an odd statement. I mean, we already had plenty of sin. Why do we need to have more? 
And what he means that sin might increase is not that we would do more, but that we would recognize how prevalent, how common, how extensive sin is within us. And then flowing out from us. But recognizing that's kind of a bummer of a statement and really leads to hopelessness, Paul follows up immediately says, you know, but don't worry about that. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I mean, that is the glorious message of the gospel. But immediately Paul recognizes, now there's going to be some people who spend that. In fact, he had alluded in chapter 3, he'd already encountered people who had taken the gospel and said, well, if that's the case, then let's just sin all the more. And taught that Paul was teaching what theologically is known as antinomianism, anti-law. In other words, there's no need to keep the law because it's all about grace. And Paul jumps into the first part of Romans chapter 6 to answer uh, that distortion of the preaching of the gospel. And he asks a rhetorical question. So what then? Shall we sin so that grace may abound? And he says, no way, by no means. And then he works through the implications of our faith, which unites us to Christ Jesus. And being in union with Christ, we now are set free from the power and the authority of sin and open to the grace and the power of God. And then he finishes as a summary statement in that first, this first part of Romans 6 with this statement. Sin will have no dominion over you, which is good news, since you're not under the law but under grace. Another glorious statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul recognizes immediately again, okay, you know, that's a glorious statement of the gospel, but people are going to take that the wrong way, and they're going to spin that the wrong way, and again, they're going to think that that is a whole issue, a whole whole uh, message of a license to do whatever people want to do. Because if we're not under sin, and we're not under the law, which points out how we fail, and its purpose is to bring about death, but we're under grace, well then what difference does it make what we do? We're under grace. So we'll just go do whatever we want, and we don't have any reason to worry about that. And Paul shows how Absurd, and while there's a there's a certain logic to it, it is a it is a, a warped logic, and so he jumps in immediately here in the second part of Romans with another almost identical rhetorical question to the one that he asked earlier, and he says this: What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And he answers the same way he did in the first. By no means. And then he explains here, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, uh, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? And and so what Paul does here is he again adopts a a metaphor to uh, describe our lives or to describe the two paths that he describes in this particular passage. So we've already looked back. What I, I see the uh, metaphor that he's using here, and the metaphor is that of slavery. And, and slavery is the trail marker. And, and he says here in, in these first lines, you are a slave to something. You are either a slave to sin, or you are a slave to righteousness. 
Now, what most of us do when we hear the word slavery, we, we are inclined to cringe. And it's probably an appropriate response. In most of our minds, in our cultural context, what comes to mind is what's known as the America's original sin. And that is cringeworthy. But while that kind of chattel slavery was present during the time of the Bible, it was another more prevalent kind of slavery that was practiced in antiquity. It was the same word, the Greek word is doulos, which means slave or means servant or, or bond servant. And in antiquity, it was a very common thing for people to become bond servants to others. A bond servant is somebody who perhaps has, has racked up a, a debt that they know that they, they cannot possibly pay. There's just no way with their income or uh, their means that they're ever going to be able to pay off this debt, however it came, whether it was through their own foolishness or because of circumstances, tragedy. Aflac didn't come through, through for them as they promised. And so now they have this, this great debt, and they want to live their lives, but they, they just they, they can't. And so what people were able to do is go to wealthy people and ask them if they would take on their debt, pay their debt off. In exchange for paying their debt, they would go into service for them. They would work off their debt for the wealthy person who had paid it off. That was the bond that was paid. We, we refer to that as an indentured servitude. And then usually it was common for somebody who sold themselves into the uh, bonded uh, servanthood to also go live on the, in the estate or in the premises of uh, of the wealthy person, and that wealthy person, during the time of employee, would provide for the person and for their family, and not only for their housing, but for uh, their food, and that would be calculated into the overall price and how long somebody needed to work until they paid their debt off. And so they were known as doulos, they were slaves, they were owned for the duration of their debt by the one who had paid their debt. And both imageries of slavery, I believe, are here in the text as Paul is distinguishing these two paths that everyone is on. And in one sense, it's one of those, another one of the places in the Bible where we can say there's two kinds of people in the world. You're either a slave to this or you're a slave to that. And then Paul goes on and he begins to share about the, the two pathways. And the first one is the, the pathway, which is slavery to sin. Now, before we look at that path, it's vitally important that we understand what sin is. A Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a great definition. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression against the law of God. It's a great definition because it is thorough, it is complete, it is holistic. Uh, and so if you were trying to squeeze out what falls in and is in and out of, uh, into the category of sin or what doesn't fall, fall into the category of sin, it's a really good definition. But it sounds to me like a definition that lawyers would come up with. You know, even though it's short, you just kind of look at that and you're kind of squeezing it out and thinking, we'll just leave this to the professionals. We just don't talk that way in day-to-day life. I mean, the parameters are good. Anything that you don't do that God wants you to do and anything that you do that God doesn't want you to do. Pretty, pretty safe. Pretty big, clear boundaries there. Then you'd have to back up and say, well, what is it that God wants me to do? What does he not want me to do? And, and, and so you have the, the whole of the law. But there's things that are not specifically stated in the law that we face in our lives day in and day out. And so we would really need to have the understanding of the context. Okay, what is it that God wants fundamentally from me? 
repeatedly in the scriptures, we're told this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And then he says, and second is like it, but it is second. And then love others. The fact is, if we're honest, we don't even get through the first. I mean, how many of us that are here today can honestly say that we love God with all of our heart, all of mind, or all of our strength? We don't love God with any of that, all of it. And even if we have that moment where it happens, that we love God with all of our affection, we have some idea it goes fast. We, we never give God all of his due. And, and the reality is then we're in sin because we're failing to do what God says that we must do. And, and we fail because we are born into this condition of sin. But more practically speaking, sin is really living for anything other than God. And the most common thing that people live for apart from God is self. What is it that's going to make me happy? What is it that I want? How am I going to live my life? And many people who live that way live that way with a total disregard for the standards of God. And we, it's obvious that those people, we would, you know, they're, they're sinners. Far less obvious is the people who choose a way that seems to be wise. They choose a way that is a moral way in accord with the rules that are consistent with godliness. But they're choosing that way not because they love God with all of their heart, with all of their mind, and with all of their strength. They choose that way because they believe it's going to bring the best outcome for them. It's all about me. I am the center of my life, of my affections, and of all of my goals. And God says that sin as well. And the pathway of, that is enslaved to sin is described by people who begin focusing on self more than on God. Paul says in that pathway... In this passage, if you look at at verse 20, it says that pathway for those who are on it, it at first may seem like freedom, or it may feel like freedom. Verse 20 says this, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, one who looks at the table of God's law, or the, the rules by which God says we would be wise, and we must therefore live by. They look at that and just say, I don't want to be bound by that. I cut myself off from that. I am not shackled. I'm not bound. I'm just going to ignore it. There is that sense of freedom from righteousness that the person may initially feel. Paul tells us that that momentary, that initial freedom, soon leads to bondage. We can understand that from different illustrations just in day-to-day life. I mean, the laws of God that he put in, uh, whether they are moral laws or whether they are physical laws, they are still God's laws. You break them, there is a problem. There's a consequence. And so we know that the person who goes up to the tallest building in town and decides, I don't want to be bound by laws that God enacted, like gravity, and then walks off the edge of the building is going to be free for a moment. And I'm not a physics person, so I don't remember how long it takes per, you know, whatever, but it's, uh, it's, it's a law of God. Uh, you step off in gravity, and it doesn't matter how big, how small you are. Uh, you know, I remember that from science class. You're going to hit the ground at, the, at, a, at a certain period of time, and then you will be bound. You will be enslaved, whether to a wheelchair or to a hospital or to a coffin. Um, you will. It's, it, you, you're bound. Maybe more immediate and, and maybe more personal for some of us uh, uh, in our lives or the lives of some of our children. 
Uh, just think about the people when they get their first, a lot, of, a lot of students, when they get to college and get their first credit card. You're no longer bound to this law of how much money do I actually have in my account. I've got whatever this card says I have. And it has seemed like incredible freedom to more than a few students over time until the bill comes. And then the credit card company owns you, the bank owns you until you pay it off in full. And for many, many people, that never happens. And, and so at first it, it feels like freedom, but ultimately it becomes bondage. And some of the bondages are, are obvious. Obviously, if somebody uh, has an illness or a disease that is a direct consequence of actions that they engaged in. But some of them, uh, at least for a time, are, are less obvious. And one of those would be like addiction. It's not always obvious that somebody has an addiction until it reveals itself that it now owns In my own life, a mild illustration of that that helped me understand kind of uh, and have appreciation for, uh, for more serious addictions. It was a time where I would drink a lot of Mountain Dew, at least one, you know, 20-ounce bottle a day, sometimes more than that. And then there was one year, a number of years ago, we had General Assembly, I remember it very vividly, in St. Louis, Missouri. We were in a really nice downtown hotel that didn't have any Mountain Dew. I didn't think that was a big deal until my head started pounding. And I realized that my body was telling me the same thing that every idol tells us, which is, you will pay me or you will have hell to pay. You will obey me, you will feed me, or you will have hell to pay. And my headache was raging, and I realized I had an addiction without recognizing it. I was feeding, I was, I was uh, obeying it every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And it was an epiphany for me spiritually. And I began to recognize not only my own addiction to that, but then how addictions were. And then I went someplace and found a Mountain Dew because the epiphany was one thing, but the headache was another. And so I just, you know, but, uh, so, um, I would grow slowly out of, out of my addiction. But the reality is there's different kinds of addictions. And what seems innocent, somebody's using their eyes and then they find that all of a sudden, they, any, any dull moment, they, they keep going back to that computer or to that substance. Drink, drug. And it's not limited to these particular vices, but we can go and we can make an idol out of anything, and it seems innocent enough, and yet eventually we recognize that these things own us. We are in bondage to it. And Paul says that's what sin is like. When we give ourselves to sin, regardless of what it is, eventually we are going to find ourselves in bondage to it. And then he goes on, and I won't elaborate just because it's for the sake of time, but you'll get the picture without any illustration of it. But that bondage, then ultimately, the next step along the path that is slave to sin is guilt and shame. And Paul even alludes to this. And he says, he's speaking to believers now. And he's saying, look, when you think back to when you were on that path, when you were a slave to sin, what fruit did you get from it that now doesn't make you cringe that you're not ashamed of him. So there's a lot of shame that comes, which then makes it even worse because people, particularly if they come to a church, a church like ours, they feel the need to hide that rather than being transparent about their need, their addiction, their brokenness, their bondage. And when it's hidden, it 
continues to have power. And ultimately, Paul says that path leads to death. Now, some might say, well, is that all there is to it? Isn't there hell for those who are enslaved to sin? Well, there is. The Bible teaches that, but Paul doesn't talk about it here, so we won't talk about it here. But the path itself is ominous. It's a path that begins that looks like it'll be quite pleasant and quite free. Who doesn't want to be free? But soon you recognize that which you think you own owns you. That leads to guilt, shame, and ultimately it will lead to death and also death that is apart from God, apart from the source of everything that is good, everything that brings joy, everything that is hopeful, in addition to the source of our salvation. Paul's pretty clear about that as he describes that within this particular passage. But then he says that there's another path as well. And the pathway, is he calls it the slavery to righteousness. Now, Paul also acknowledges here, I, I find in a, in a rather snide, humorous way. I mean, I don't know if it was intended to be snide. I'm, I'm reading it that way. That there's, there's a hole in this illustration when he talks about being a slave to righteousness and a slave to God. I mean, to be a slave to the one who brings freedom. And we see Paul here. Um, says in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms about this illustration because of your limitations. All right, so in other words, Paul's saying we're not smart enough to understand fully, so he's going to use an illustration that is not perfect, but it'll give us the picture. But it does give us a parallel, and he says now you can either be a slave to sin, or you can be a slave to righteousness, and that is the the second pathway. And, And he says what's interesting is on the The pathway, uh, number two, the slave to righteousness, it can initially feel like bondage. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, it's a, a set of standards that prior to that you were not bound to. You didn't feel any compulsion to keep. Now there are expectations. Now there are guidelines to which you are expected to conform. And that can feel incredibly confining and cause us to feel quite um, burdened. But ultimately, it's for the purpose of setting us free. Paul says, in obedience, it will lead to sanctification, which means your spiritual growth, dying to your sin, growing in the righteousness of Christ, you looking more and more as God-driven. And really, it, it, it only makes sense that if God has created us and he has gifted each of us in a specific way, and we're told that he has good works that he's prepared for us, so there's a very specific things that God wants for us to engage in, so that each of us is necessary and useful, not only to one another, but to the, to the whole world. It only makes sense that when we find ourselves in conformity to the way God has made us, is where we're going to find our freedom and our joy and our purpose. But there's a need to be obedient, and for that obedience, there's a need to be trained and conformed to, uh, to the standards of God. Elizabeth Elliot tells a story of visit that she made to Scotland. And she was watching a Scottish collie tending sheep. And here's what she says. He was beautiful to watch, circling right, then circling left, 
barking, crouching, racing along, herding a stray sheep here and there. His eyes were always glued to the sheep, and his ears were always listening for the tiny whistle of his master. He was in all his glory doing what he was created to do. And that's a picture of our lives, that at first, when we have to go through training of different, different kinds, when we feel like there might be some restrictions that, that God's commands, that the way of righteousness requires, the purpose of that discipline and the purpose for those instructions is to shape us to be who we were created to be. And once those things start becoming normal, when we stop focusing on them and we can focus on that which brings us joy, having been disciplined, having been trained, having been shaped through obedience to God's commands, then it's second nature. Whatever it is that we do, we can be like that colleague. We are in all our glory doing exactly what we were created to do, not only living lives of moral conformity, but living lives that are full. A friend of mine teaching on this says it's like learning to dance. I'll take his word for it. You know, if you don't know how to dance, your first few lessons are awful. You're falling all over yourself. You're stepping on your partner. But for those who have learned to dance, it becomes incredibly free because eventually you stop thinking about your feet and your steps and you just have an ability to express yourself and joy, so I'm told. And the same is true for those who are on the path of righteousness. And Paul says very quickly, very easily, easily, but very simply here, the one you obey is the one who wants you. This is not a works righteousness, but he's saying, look, even if you're redeemed, if the answer to the question of so shall we sin because we're not under law, but we're under grace, well, then if you choose to live in sin, you're obeying the commands of your old master. If you've been set free from that, and you now are free to obey the commands of the true master who is building you, shaping you for life, not only eternal. So the question is this, which path are you on? You need to recognize the first path, the path enslaved to sin, we are born into. It's the default pattern. The second path, the path in slavery to righteousness, is one that we are born again in order to access. Paul says that you've become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching. The standard of teaching, if to be consistent here, would have to be the gospel, and then understanding the law in line with the gospel. But the law is no longer our standard. Christ is our standard, and he has paid that for us. But the law that broke us and drove us to Christ, to trust in him, that enabled us to be born again by God's grace through faith guides us and we relate to it differently because it's not out of fear or failure because it's the hope that it's the end of the path and so asking the question who which path are you on 
It's answered by who do you serve? I tell you that Bob Dylan was right. You've got to serve someone. I don't know where he was in his faith journey at that point. I know that it was a time that he made a profession of faith, but I mean, listen to what Bob, he had profound insight here. Bob Dylan says this, you may be an ambassador to England or to France. You may, be, you may like to gamble, you might like to dance. You might be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna to have to serve somebody. Indeed, you're gonna to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. Joshua says this, choose this day who you will serve. That's for me and my house. He will serve the Lord. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes not only to the glorious truths of the gospel that allows us to have life, but to the path that that life takes us. Praise you would also give us understanding that the alternate, the, the path of which we are naturally inclined to go, and where that goes. And for those who are in Christ, that we would give thanks to you for your grace that saved us and put us on the path. And for those who have not yet trusted in Christ, to consider it, to recognize it merely by believing, trusting, following you. They move from a path of death to the path of life. Lord, be at work in us so that we can honestly see our trajectory. And move us to the way of 